but you've got to start simple. So you've got to build that house, right? You can't put the, the second floor on a home until you build the foundation. So, so that's where you have to have the right structure in place, roles and responsibilities, job descriptions. Everybody needs to understand you have to have a training matrix that defines what are the key things that are associated with each line? What's the skill set of the people that I have associated to this line? Where's my backups, et cetera. You have to have all of that built out and then you start establishing standard of work for people. Welcome to the Zen and the Art of Manufacturing podcast where we learn about how to create calm in manufacturing. We focus on culture, developing people, continuous improvement and technology with an emphasis on quick wins and real information you can use to master the fundamentals and build a world-class manufacturing organization. So today we have with us Nick Hinman, who is the Vice President of Corporate Strategy at Tacone in St. Louis, Missouri. And he works closely with Tacone's executive leadership on strategic corporate projects, focusing on areas of network optimization, M&A target evaluation, and continuous improvement. It might seem odd to have a VP of strategy on a manufacturing oriented podcast, but Nick, you have a long history of working in manufacturing and lean and things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So prior to taking my current role, that that was majority of what I did was manufacturing, lean, continuous improvement and efficiency work. We've known each other for, I guess, five or six years now. How did you end up in the supply chain organizations of the of the different companies that you've worked for? Yeah, so I actually started my career in finance and after working in for a trading company for a couple of years, I just took a leap of faith to drive a little bit more value in what I was doing every day. Naturally kind of got me into operations and, and my, my dad was in M&A and operational type work for a long time. So I kind of had an understanding about, you know, how companies operate and the value that process and, and different things can bring to the organization. So I, I took a job as a business analyst. And through that opportunity, I was just put on a bunch of different projects that had a lot of different operational focuses or experience associated with them. So worked as a buyer for a little bit, ran a warehouse, did different things and kind of was a placeholder that, that just supported different corporate projects, which ultimately kind of morphed into supply chain, manufacturing, and operations. So it was just really kind of a luck thing. And as I worked all those different opportunities in different projects, I just really fell in love with the idea of driving value, but also finding a better way to do things and just seeing how those improvements helped the business, but also helped people and really drove the culture of those businesses, provided that leadership kind of opportunities and really just Honestly, I just enjoy seeing the successes of operational improvement. So where did you learn? Did you kind of learn all of this on the job or? So operationally, yes, doing a lot of books, talking to a lot of people. But then from a lean perspective, I did have the fortunate, you know, opportunities to work with a couple of different consulting firms and some practitioners that had a plethora of experience in different industries. And, and those opportunities and, and those experiences, those conversations really just helped me kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. So taking that, that opportunity of working closely with consultants, but then also having the ability to have all the different experience that I'd had up to that point, it was easy for me to kind of meld the two together and, and really kind of start to develop a lean understanding, if you will, that 
to this day, I, you know, I, I think uh, is honestly keep keep learning. Right. And, and that's the beauty of it. But lean for me is one of those things that you just kind of get it. But but you really don't get it until you're able to put it into action. Yeah. Like you don't you, and you kind of don't understand it until you see it. Correct. Yeah. You got to almost you, you got to be involved in it to really understand it and, and to be able to talk it and then ultimately be able to teach it. Yeah, that makes sense. The more I see, the more I realize you have to see it and do it to understand it. Kind of the the thing that I wanted to focus on with you today was maybe even a theoretical lean journey in a company or even, you know, if you want to pull examples from, you know, where you've worked. What I've seen over my career in manufacturing is there's a lot of places that are busy fighting fires all the time and they don't don't feel like they have the time to stop and improve things, right? Because they're constantly trying to get stuff out the door and being reactive to what's happening. So if, if you walked into one of those places, either as a new employee or, or you bought a place or even as a consultant, where do you start? Yeah. So, so I think firefighting is, is everywhere, right? I mean, you can, it's not just on the, the manufacturing floor and the, or in the distribution warehouse, you know, it kind of starts at the front and, and, and that kind of culture permeates through, throughout most companies. So from an operational perspective, you know, if I was to walk into a plant, the first thing you kind of start with is just observing the people and just kind of the pace of work, right? Because the first thing you, your mind's going to go to is, you know, what does this person do? Um, what is their responsibility? And then you just kind of sit back and observe what they're doing in relation to what they're supposed to be doing, right? And that answers a lot of questions right away that ultimately open up a conversation of, well, I noticed you were doing this when you should have been doing this, or how come you walked over and asked that person five times in the last 10 minutes for something? And and those those types of observations are quickly then linked to the rest of the operation, right? If one person is doing that on one line, you can you quickly then see that that's happening on additional lines. You can see it with material handling. It then even works its way back into the scheduling and the leadership perspective of a plant. So a lot of the times when you walk in, it's it's more of a, you know an observational period because if you're quick to judgment, you, you almost go into it formulating a previous experience that may not be realistic to what's going on in, in that particular situation. Okay. So then after you've kind of <laughs> observed this situation, and I mean, I, I can point out a couple things, I guess, just by listening to the story of, of things that could be fixed there, but you know, where do you go next from that? So you've, you've done your observations, you kind of see where, you know, maybe there's redundancies and waste in the, in the whole process, but what's next? Yeah, next is is conversations, right? So so really getting with the management and the leadership team to understand and get their viewpoint uh, of what they think their challenges are and what's what's holding them back from reaching those goals, whether it's inventory reduction, whether it's an increase in throughput, reduction in headcount, you know, utilizing space, wh- whatever it might be, those conversations are critical to developing the roadmap, right? And then from those conversations, you put down a game plan and, and, and that game plan really is is in stages associated with the simplistic things that, that come along with lean. So the way that I would approach it is, again, you put that game plan together and in, in those phases, in those milestones, you kind of determine easy to, to difficult. And that then puts all the, the the detail around those those open lists of things to do, right? So if I if we've got to do five S, okay, well that's obviously a huge undertaking. What does that look like in this plan? And then you put that detailed plan together. You start to then also develop a train the trainer program right out of the gate, right? So the first thing you want to make sure is that that team has a structure in place. It has leaders, and from there you start having conversations with those leaders about, okay, what do you know about five S? 
What do you know about waste reduction? What do you know about spaghetti mapping? All of those different things that ultimately need to be done on that journey of getting you to where you want to go and mapping that process out, getting that structure in place, and then teaching people through show or through PowerPoints, whatever it might be to, to engage with them. Because, you know, as a leader that's, that's not there on the shop floor, maybe as a consultant or someone that doesn't necessarily work in that particular building all the time, it's very difficult to come out of the gate and implement change without really proving yourself the understanding and building those relationships. Okay. So proving yourself, meaning? Meaning that you understand what you're doing, but at the same time, you, under, you understand the, the operator. You understand the people you're working with. You're not making decisions based upon previous experiences or what, what a lean book tells you you should do. You're really applying that fundamental logic to the application at hand, right? So just because it says you need to have so-and-so or you should be doing, you know, the, the work instruction or, or the cycle time in the, the bill of materials is saying, you know, you should make this every five seconds. If that's theoretically not what's going on, you mandating that right off the bat to someone is ultimately going to have them shut down. So building that rapport is critical out of the gate with that end goal in sight and that roadmap to show them how to get there. Okay, so if we made it a little bit more con concrete, so like a, a common issue that, that folks have that we talk to is they have unplanned overtime, right? The, you're running overtime because you're trying to deliver on time to your customers. You know, you're, you're looking at totals for the week and then having to add a shift, a half a shift, something like that on the weekend. You want to get rid of that because it just eats into your margins. And maybe that's my biggest issue. So what's the roadmap look like for an issue like that? Yeah. So the first thing you're going to go to is, is what is your efficiency? So let's take out the fact that you have a ton of demand that needs to flow through that plant. You really need to establish what is my current cycle time and then back your way into the demand requirements from a forecast perspective or a firm demand of PO to establish the tack time. From there, that ultimately tells me we've got to go from X to Y really quickly and how are we going to get there? And the first thing most people do to mitigate overtime, Brian, is throw resources at something. So pull someone from another line, go hire somebody. But all you're really doing is robbing Peter to pay Paul in that circumstance. Because unless your overtime is is a really small portion, a couple of hours a week, you may not, you know, it may make sense to run overtime rather than to go hire a person. But a lot of the times it, it's that disconnect between the cycle time and the tack time. And a lot of those conversations had to start with forecast or demand and what was told to the customer versus the reality of the situation. And I think there's a big disconnect in most operational businesses between the front end and the back end of the house when it comes to customer satisfaction and ultimately that customer experience. The disconnect being front of the house promising something the back can't deliver? Yeah, that or front of the house not connected with back of the house from a forecast and, and just an overall capacity understanding, right? Just out of the gate. You know, we're, we need to make 100 widgets a week, every week. Well, we're only staffed to make 75. And if that's the case, you have to then go to the 75 and say, how efficient am I at making 75 with the current amount of people I have? Because right away, that doesn't mean that we have to go back to the customer and tell them, hey, instead of getting you the 100, you, we promise you we can only get you 75. As an operational leader, you need to go to that 75 and see 
how efficient am I being in that time? And that's where most of the focus for me as a as an operational leader is is not is just inefficiency. There, there's a lot of metrics that you can track, but the key metric that I focus on is that efficiency number. What what am I controlling that I can control? Right. Tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean? What am I controlling that I can control? So what I mean by that is is that I can only control how many widgets my team makes given the operation that we have at hand, right? So I can't control how much a customer is going to order. I can only control how many widgets that we get out and how efficiently we get it out. If I'm hyperly focused on, you know, what I can't do, then I'm going to, I'm not going to be focused on what I can do. So that's where those metrics that I look at tracking are really simplistic, right? Red and green. Did I get out the widget I was supposed to get out on time? If I did, great, right? And then the operational side of that and the management side of that are two different things. Operationally, let's execute on what we can execute on. Management-wise, we need to go handle the customer expectation completely separate of the operational floor, you know, because that's where you get the disruption. And to your point, strategic and executive leadership usually come in and say, this needs to get out for this customer no matter what happens. And typically that tends to permeate the firefighting situation. And you see that in a lot of, in a lot, a lot of businesses where this is our biggest customer. I don't care what it takes, but get this out. And that's ultimately where you start running into things that impact your performance number, which is your quality, which is your, your scrap rate, headcount, inefficiencies, all of those things bundle into that. And it's quick to quickly surface that up, right? Okay. If you're walking into a place where, you know, you're looking at a firefighting situation and you're building out this roadmap to try to, let's start to minimize the firefighting, right? Talked about the specifics of of overtime as being one example. How do you transition from that into kind of building something more sustainable, you know, that improves over time and yeah, so start simple, right? Start really simple. Start showing that roadmap. And in, in that roadmap, you have detailed objectives of little things that ultimately are going to help you reach your goal, right? So that's really the defining part of that roadmap is working with that line lead or working with that operations manager to really make sure that all the small things are noted in as objectives in that roadmap so that you can quickly show and prove to the team that those subtle little changes are adding up as key wins, which ultimately gets you to to the end, right? So if it's really hard for people, especially those that have worked in manufacturing plants for a long time to accept change. Everybody knows that, right? And when a guy comes in from corporate that's here to quote unquote help, a lot of the times the first thing people do is they're, they're not gonna tell you the truth and they're, they're gonna be very reluctant to listening to you because you just don't know. And that's natural, right, for any of us and in, in, in not just manufacturing. So to, to win those people over from a leadership perspective, you've got to show the simple, small wins and ultimately start, you know, taking, right. showing a scoreboard. And a lot of that is with, you know, a whiteboard or, or a chalkboard at the end of the line that shows, you know, we've got to make 10. What do you make today? And then you have a conversation about your shortfalls. And then those shortfalls then are reviewed in that that detailed list of, okay, well, we're working on this, right? We're trying to get better at getting the job to the line faster by making sure you have enough material in your bin so that you don't have to wait through. And by showing and then delivering on that, that, that ultimately gets people to buy in. How are you, how do you share that information amongst the group? Cause you, you can't do the whole plant at once, right? So like, how do you kind of start small there and then share those wins? 
Yeah, that's a great point because you always got to start small. I mean, if you walk into it and try to change a whole plant at once, it's not going to work. There's going to be too much to get done, too many people to manage. And and just that's just too big of a change at once, to be frank with you. And that was one of my challenges when I first started because I, I just in, in nature have kind of an aggressive personality and, and I like to see things get done quickly. Because, you know, when you do it once, it, it clicks real quick, right? It's it's very applicable to, to a lot of situations. So you have to select a line. And usually it's a line that you work with the, with the leadership team that says, okay, it may not be the line that has the biggest issues. It's usually the line that, that people are the most comfortable knowing that it'll be successful and that the people that are associated with that have the rapport amongst the rest of the group that the group will follow. So if they see you being really successful, Brian, as, as a long-term employee or as someone that maybe had a reputation as being you know, disgruntled or reluctant to change, and I can come in and I can get you to buy in, that's, a, that's an easy, easy way for then me to take on the next line and the next line. And then everybody starts to buy in. Right. Because everybody starts seeing that line one doesn't have to run on Saturdays anymore. I want to be like line one. Right. I want the, the overtime's nice up into a point. So getting that buy in from people is critical. But doing it again in simplistic, successful way is really how you get people to fall in line with your journey and your ultimate goal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it seems to me that I mean, I'm a technology guy. Right. So I always look for technology solutions there. But it seems to me that all of this is a it's a people sure. and a culture thing, right? If you can build this trust and this sort of uh, engaged culture, change is much easier to affect in that environment than it is somewhere else. Like this situation that you described where people aren't going to tell you the truth. They don't really want to change. They don't want to be called out. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, you're a technology guy. But to put it in technology terms, though, you know, what, how you build a technology software is with programming, right? So the ultimate thing at the end of going through all of this and, and learning and then establishing is putting in a sustainable program, right? And you have to have standard processes that are documented, because if you don't have those, it's very hard to hold people accountable and, and to control the environment that, that you've put in place. And that's one of the challenges with lean. And that's where you see most of the time where it fails is that people do it and they, they can get it launched. They can't sustain it. And you see that a lot, right? Because if, if your executive team isn't bought into the vision and isn't, isn't bought into the culture, the next time that president of that company walks on that manufacturing floor and dictates that that customer's order needs to go out today, that can kill the entire thing. And you're back to where you were from the beginning. And, and that's a lot of what happens is that people just once you slip on the discipline a little bit, it's it's a slippery slope back to where you where you came from. And it's really hard to get back to that lean journey. So how do you do that? That's probably the most difficult part. And, and especially in a multi-site environment, you know, it's easy for me to to walk out out into the plant when you, when you're there every day. But, you know, when you're across the country or even across the world. That's where you, you, you really have to document your processes and your program, establish standard of work, establish KPIs, and establish a rapport with people that there's a mutual understanding of an expectation here. I quickly can, can look at data and KPIs and know that you fell out of line, and I need to react to that with you as quickly as possible. And also really make sure that the teams that you're working with understand that that from a lean perspective, you have to be proactive. That's where continuous improvement is critical, right? Reactive continuous improvement becomes proactive, meaning you're mitigating future mistakes 
if you have a culture of continuous improvement because you're always learning from what you did wrong the first time to ensure it doesn't happen a second time. Mm-hmm. So those are, I mean, that's the big thing, right? Is that it, it's, it's a management in a culture that has to be established up front and it has to then be, you know, navigated in a sense to where you know where those checks and balances are of when things start to get too good, which is just as concerning as if they start to get really bad. So how do you start to build that out, that structure and the the standard work and everything that needs to go around that? You know, a lot of it is just keeping it simple. So start with Excel, right? So standard of works can be built in Excel by by structure. So when I think of lean and, and to go back to it, you know, lean is broad. It's it's really hard to you know my lean expectations are probably different from majority of the people that are going to listen to this podcast right they're probably different than than yours or you know some of the guys that that I work with or that that I've worked with in the past but you've got to start simple so you've got to build that house right you can't put the the second floor on a home until you build the foundation so so that's where you have to have the right structure in place roles and responsibilities job descriptions everybody needs to understand. You have to have a training matrix that defines what are the key things that are associated with each line? What's the skill set of the people that I have associated to this line? Where's my backups, et cetera. You have to have all of that built out and then you start establishing standard of work for people. Hey, every day I need you to do this. Once a week I need you to do this. And if you define that and you hold people accountable, it's much easier to manage than constantly having to follow up on things that were either missed or reminding people. And that's where more successful morning meetings come in, right? Gemba walks are big on that. Because if you start having those routinely, it builds in this expectation that people already know what they're expected to do throughout the entire process. So from a scheduling and a planning perspective to a procurement, What's our inventory philosophy? Everybody knows how their position helps the team ultimately win. And by defining that, you know, you're you're able to then manage it through a scoreboard. Okay. Because you understand that the foundation has been laid and <clears throat> the numbers going up or down on the scoreboard is a symptom of, of the cost, right? Of somebody not following something. Yeah. Yeah. You can quickly do a root cause analysis when you look at a line and you you know the people that are on that line, the, the job descriptions, what they're supposed to do. You have the cycle time of the part that's running on that line. Once you kind of, once you have all of that, it's easy to diagnose. It's also a lot easier to not have to micromanage. Yeah. Right. So th- that that's the other thing, micromanaging these people and, and the people you're trying to, to take on this journey. If you micromanage them, the same thing as telling someone that, you know, you need to use your left hand instead of your right hand. They're just going to say enough's enough. This person isn't going to listen to me. Mm-hmm. So how much detail are in those standard work documents or Excel templates? Uh, n- not much. It's usually at a management level um, or a leader level, kind of like, you know, I run my morning meeting every morning from 7 a.m. to 7.10. I do my gimbal walks, but at 9 a.m., 11.30, and 1.45. I have my end-of-day report out and email my manager or write in my log anything that might have happened and get prepared for the next day. I mean, it's really simple. Or once a week on Wednesdays, I've got to walk the corrugate aisle to make sure that our VMI inventory is at the right levels and we didn't miss anything to make sure that the ERP is is running right. Because those are the things that if you don't keep up on them, they permeate that firefighting and they can just totally kill what you're trying to do. And, and, and to be frank, I mean, those are the things that probably everybody on this podcast deals with on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Definitely. I mean, I can even relate this stuff to software development. Like it, it, it cuts across most industries and what everybody has to deal with. Yeah. 
So when you're talking about standard work, it's not getting down to like what the individual, you know, operators or people working on the line are specifically doing necessarily. No, that that's all in that uh, work instructions and those things that engineering put together with them at the front end. You know, the only things really lean wise that that you would work with them on is, is you know, if you're running a Kanban system with, with hardware or things like that, you want to educate them on the importance of being diligent with that system, right? Because if you run through bin one and you pull bin two forward, you have to make sure that bin one goes in the replenishment area because someone's not going to see that. And that ultimately then will run you out of parts. But that's also kind of the expectation that's built into the job description of those leaders. And in a lot of times, you know, after you get through the, the initial conversations, the observance of what's going on, a lot of it you find out that people really don't know what they're expected to do every day. And once you, once you work with them and define that, ultimately you find that you become more successful right away. Because people like to feel successful. They don't like to feel like failure. So if you can set them up and you can walk with them and make sure that you know, you're working with them to put them in a successful position, yeah. then comes the scoreboard. But don't throw the scoreboard up right away. No one wants to look up there and just constantly see that they're losing every day. So, so there's a fine line there, right? Because ultimately, that you know, again, if executive leadership is not on this journey with you, that's where you're going to have a conflict of interest. Right. Yeah. Can you be successful if executive leadership's not on the journey with you? No, I, I truly don't believe so. I, do they need to be lean practitioners? Do they need to, you know, understand lean and, and be able to, to do that? No, but I think that they have to trust the team that they have in place to execute and, and what lean will do for their operations. And that's really that that sponge, right? So it's okay if customer that customer order needs to go out today, but it's it's not the CEO's job to walk out on the floor and, and, and share that. That needs to go through the plant manager or the production operations manager who then articulates it appropriate within the foundations that have been laid. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So, okay. So you have to build, you know, like you were talking about the uh, analogy of a house, right? Where you're building the foundation, which is kind of the standard work, roles and responsibilities, training matrix, putting in the, sounds like morning meetings and gamble walks are kind of part of that too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, just all those like kind of foundational things, right. That, that are associated with making sure that you're going to put you and your team in a, in a position to maintain your KPIs. Right. And then once you get there, then you can go up a level, which is the five whys doing Kaizen events, doing continuous improvement type fishbone activities, putting in more complicated Kanban type processes that gets you less reliant on an ERP system and more reliant on visual management and things like that. But if you go out of the gate with that, without the foundation and the fundamentals in place, those things become too difficult to manage. And ultimately you, you revert back to what you're used to, right? Which is usually a push system where you're, you're making stuff just to make it instead of making it with a purpose, which is also what, what I really find really neat about lean is that there, like everything you do has a purpose. Everything you do drives value to the end of the day. And ultimately, everything that you do is reflected on your scoreboard, both the scoreboard for your production side and as for the plant as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you guys run your morning meetings, like at the plants? What's the structure of those things? We try to do it as consistently as possible across all of our manufacturing sites. We do morning meetings in, in our manufacturing areas, and we do them in our warehouse distribution receiving areas. And, and what we focus on is really, again, simple. How do we do yesterday? What do we have to do today to improve from yesterday? Are there anything we need to talk about that's of importance? Any, any unique situations, any, anything critical happening today that we need to make sure as a team we get done, whether it's 
completing an order that's on the line, being aware that you know something is on back order and is of critical importance, highlighting quality issues we ran into the day before, mispicks, customer service issues, scrap from engineering. And, and then we just review where we are at back order wise or overall efficiency wise to make sure that the team is all aware that, hey, here's where we are for the week. Here's where we got to get to go. Here's the things we need to pay attention to. And, and from there, we, we start the day, right? We try not to inundate people with too much information because that can tend to be a distraction. It, it seems to me that the morning meetings are kind of critical to the whole process. Like, is it also where you share some of those quick wins or how does that come about? You know, every day we want to show that we're successful. We want people to feel successful. If we weren't successful, that's where we talk about how do we get better. We don't focus on what happened. We focus on where are we going to improve today from yesterday. And a lot of it, to be to be honest, is, is just the communication piece. The morning meeting, in my mind, is just open communication and dialogue. It's keeping everybody on the same page, answering questions, and also addressing the things that need to be addressed. Don't make it personal. And we really educate our, our, our leaders to, to make sure that they do that, right? So we empower them to be in charge of their own. We don't have like a regimented morning meeting. We, we let our guys run their morning meetings the, the way that it best suits their team because everybody's got a little bit different, right? I, I think that's the, the, the flexibility of the way that we kind of operate at Taconi is, is we're a very diverse company. So one plant is different than another plant. One warehouse is different than another one in terms of just the sheer amount of way we ship product, build product, inventory product. So we kind of, we, we've got KPIs that, that are aligned across all of those plants so that we can all talk the same talk when we're looking at KPIs and discussing ultimately how we're doing. But from a day-to-day -day execution piece, we just kind of let them do it. And as long as they stay within our expected, uh, you know, guidelines. Yeah. So kind of following the standard work stuff. And... Yeah. We just say, hey, communicate with your team, have a morning meeting, not you have to talk, da, 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 da. We just say the expectation is you have a morning meeting. And you're building the rapport with your team appropriately. Yeah. Okay. It's it's surprising to me that there's still a lot of companies out there that, that don't do that. They don't have a morning meeting. They have a weekly meeting with the production team and they're sitting in a conference room looking at stuff. Yeah. It's just real quick. I think that's a, that's a great point because in a corporate strategy role, I work, I work with a lot of different areas now within our business. So admin stuff, sales, it's amazing to see the value of a morning meeting across an entire organization. So that's one of the things that I, I we've been looking at implementing in, in these other areas of the business is morning meetings and scoreboards, right? So because it ultimately just breeds inclusion, it breeds communication, it breeds winning. And when people are winning, they have fun. Fun creates a great culture. So it, it's very important. And that's to your point, it's amazing that people don't do it because I think people see it as well, we don't have time to do that. Well, you, you got to make time. Right. And it seems to be a key part of that continuous improvement culture, because if you're not getting together on a regular basis, you're probably not going to get all the feedback that you need on the issues that happened yesterday. And, and they're going to fester until they become too big. And nobody really, you miss the chance to stop them while they're small. Yeah. Communication leads to assumptions and assumptions lead to problems. So, you know, if you can stay connected at the right level and you have the right goals and the right tracking in place as a leadership team, you should quickly be able to know to ask the right questions and go go to the areas of concern. So that's again, that's where gamble walks come in. Right. So you're you're not necessarily unaware of what's going on until the next morning's meeting. You're aware of that throughout the day and trying to to identify what's going on, whether it's through an on board or 
you know, a light on the line when it goes down, you know, hey, I got to go see what's going on. They need support. Those are the things I think that that really, to your point, gets you out of reactive mode and gets you into proactive mode. Yeah, it makes sense. You also said something to me um, when I toured the Chicago plant with you a couple of years ago about looking at issues and determining like, is this an ongoing concern or is this just like a one time issue? Yep. And is that is that part of those meetings too, or is that kind of part of you know problem solving farther down the chain? Yeah, no. So I think you can you can do it in two ways. So if it's product manufacturing related, so so say it's like a scrap reason. Obviously, a Pareto chart will identify exceptions to 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 consistent problems, right? But when you're walking around a plant, I think that's at an operational management level, that's that's a critical piece that you have to learn, which is where do I dig in versus where do I just let it roll, right? So becoming overreactionary is going to actually make you more inefficient. It's hard to explain, but you're you're right. Like if I walk around and worry about every single thing that goes wrong, then I'm just going to drive myself crazy. I'm going to drive the employees crazy and we're not going to get anything done. But if I only focus and work with work on the right things that need the right amount of attention, mm-hmm. then hopefully that's going to just improve us going down the road and you'll see that. So it's it's kind of difficult to explain, but it's it's really up to the plant and to the leadership team to, to define that. But I do find that like if you go into trying to solve every single problem every single day, it's you're never going to get you're never going to get anywhere and you're going to start to bury people and burn people out. Because that also tends to focus on the negative. And when you focus constantly on the negative, then that permeates in the culture and, and you start to get people pushing back and not being as flexible and, and bought into the systems that you're trying to build. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, all right. So we're kind of thinking about this house and, and you know, we're, I'm, I'm leading towards like this incentive program that you guys have. And I'm really intrigued by that. A lot of people want to do those things for their, for their plants. So you build this foundation of, you build this culture that we've been talking about. And it sounds like you have lean tools that can kind of fit in the middle, like Kaizen events and fishbone diagrams, five Y's, five S, all of that fun stuff. But how do you get from there up to the point where things are stabilized enough that you can do a, an incentive program? And what do those things look like? And how do you start that? Yeah, sure. So we do run an incentive program and it took us quite a while to get to the incentive program. And, and we had a lot of strategic and management conversations around when was the right time and how do we put it in the right way so it, it doesn't kill what we're trying to do, right? Because people will just see the end goal versus, you know, making sure they're doing everything correctly. So so what's the right way to to roll out the incentive program? So to go back to the first point, that's part of that roadmap. So the first time you walk into the plant to when you think you've, you've gotten to where you need to go, at some point when you get farther down that roadmap and, and through that project plan, you'll hit a period where you say, okay, this thing's running pretty sweet. Like we're doing a really good job. Our structure's in place. We're keeping up. We're meeting our KPIs. The culture's there. People are getting it, right? They're speaking it. They're behaving it. Okay, now I can look at doing something a little bit more accelerated and, and that has a little bit different connotation to it. So that's where we decided, okay, let's let's go with the incentive program. So we didn't roll it out corporate-wide. We did it at the plant level. So we started and said, okay, we but we needed to establish, Brian, what what goes into this incentive program? It just can't be production output because mm-hmm. quality will suffer, right? And everybody will just forget, oh, I, I for, you know, I got to get another five units out the last 10 minutes of my shift rather than 5S my line and get ready for tomorrow. So we built out a tiered 
incentive plan that has three pillars. So we've got production efficiency, right? So we don't go off a of standard. We go off of reality. Big time because we don't want to push inventory. We don't want to have more inventory than we need. We want to keep ourselves lean from a, a flexibility standpoint. So we go off of efficiency. What did I get done with what I could control? We go off of quality. So we're tracking quality issues at the line for two reasons. One, we don't want to let bad parts get to the end customer. Obviously, that's number one. And number two, we want to get the right information for that continuous improvement process. And then the third pillar is 5S because I'm a firm, firm, firm believer that 5S is a critical, critical component of a successful lean plant. And the reason being is that clutter causes confusion and confusion causes inefficiencies. So it's easy to onboard people. It's easy to move people around. It helps you establish standard of work. It helps you put in visual management, Kanban, et cetera, because everything is in its place. So it's critical that we focused on 5S. And in early in our journey, you would think, okay, yeah, everybody's going to be focusing on production and quality. We actually put production and quality as 25% of the incentive program and 5S is 50% of our incentive program. We're hyper-focused on 5S because if we do and hold ourselves accountable to being organized, we should meet our productivity goal. We should have better quality because we know what's good, what's bad. And so if we're, if we're in a position to be efficient and in a position to be productive, then our quality should be better. And it all starts with the discipline of being organized and running the system. Because if, if you don't establish a robust 5S program, then you can't have everything else as you go up the chain of that house, right? As you start to build out that foundation, it's going to crumble. So it's very interesting because most people think incentive programs are all based on efficiency. No, ours is based on 5S and then production and efficiency. And you know what? People got that really quickly. It, you walk into our plants from three years ago to where they are today, you probably wouldn't recognize them. And people understand that. And they buy in and then people start thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe we need to, to tape out the floor here. Or, you know, maybe we need to start moving things over here because this is where we always put this. It, it starts to just then permeate ideas, which ultimately impact your productivity. Yeah, it's really interesting. There, have you ever read this, the book, The Power of Habit? I think that's what it's called. No, I have not. Sounds like maybe I, I'd like that. Yeah, it's it's how to build habits in organizations, you know, and like what what the components are to make that happen. And there's a story in there. I wish I remembered the company's name, but there's a story in there where a guy took over this company. It might have been U.S. Steel. Then they had all kinds of problems across the entire company. And, and like the share price was going down and just like tons of issues. And he decided we're going to focus on safety. We focus on safety and we keep all of our employees safe. And that is our number one goal that we're going to do. Everything else will fall in place. And that is similar to what you guys did with 5S, it sounds like, because it's like if, if you can focus on this organization and making everything clear, then the rest of it should fall in place. Plus, you're building these habits of organization following these processes and things like that. Is that kind of how you see it? Or Yeah. So I actually stopped telling places that I was visiting them. So I would stop letting people know that I was traveling to their plant because I didn't want them to to clean up before I got there, because that's a learning opportunity. I would just literally spend hours walking around with different leaders in different areas of these facilities, explaining and, and teaching, not necessarily calling them out, but, but explaining the importance. Like, why would you put that there? Or, hey, I noticed that that's over there. What is that? And if they can't speak to it, then we would walk over there and we would talk about it. And I would just share that, you know, the expectation is next time I'm here, you know, this needs to be in a different place because this is very important. Because what if, you know, the big thing in, in that power of habit, right, is that 
if I can get those leaders to buy into the habit, it ultimately then feeds through the organization. It becomes that expectation that everybody needs to hold themselves to the same standard, right? So what you also find in manufacturing and in that first conversational piece a lot is that there's so much tribal knowledge built into these facilities. And a lot of the teaching of 5S in visual management is around, well, what happens when you're not here? Who's going to know that that box, even though systematically it says it's an ILB, you remember you put in an ILL because you didn't have time to do the scan from B to L. Those are the things that you just you teach people through practice and through conversation. And that starts to then connect the dots for them, which ultimately is a waterfall effect um, around that. And frankly, the incentive plan has helped us and has been a catalyst to us doing that correctly, right? So they know that if they don't hold their 5S, they are not going to get that portion of their incentive. And ultimately, we set it up so that they do get their bonus. We want people to meet their bonus. We don't want to put in an efficiency goal that is unrealistic. You can't say, yeah, you're supposed to make 10 widgets, and that expects that you have 10 people, but only seven people showed up today. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys didn't meet it. The other thing is too, like there's there's all other rules built into the incentive program that are outside of those three pillars. Attendance, attendance is a big one. If you have an unexcused absence outside of the fact that, you know, you had a family member sick or you had something, you know, un- that you couldn't control come up or-, or you didn't have a doctor's note, you're excluded from that week. And we focus weekly on the incentive program. So it allows people to recover and still get some piece of the incentive. What we found... <laughs> is remarkable. Our efficiency has gone up, our back orders have gone down, our inventory levels have dropped, and our efficiency rate is better than it's ever been. That's crazy. So do you, is it is it daily or is it weekly or? Weekly. Weekly, okay. But daily, we track every day, which ends to the week. So from a reaction perspective, it's not like, oh my God, yesterday we were terrible. I'm not going to make it this week and say that's Monday or Tuesday. That's where, hey, guys, what do we need to do to make it up to get to 95% by the or 90% by the end of the week? It's not 100%. You know, we don't want to set it too high. It's like everybody says, you know, what's your OEE calculation, right? You know, or what's your capacity? Are you at 100% capacity? Never scheduled to 100% capacity. So, so we set it up to be successful so that people can get it because ultimately our capacity is at 80%. But we want people to achieve 80, 85% efficiency because that allows us that flexibility, mm-hmm. which we know is wrong, which is the forecast. And that comes from where I started, which was in supply chain and planning. So I know the forecast volatility there, but I, now I can understand how the volatility of the forecast impacts the daily output of the, of the plant. And one of the jobs that I, that I really relished in this is how do you bring these teams together to really build that cohesive teamwork from the schedule to the warehouse and and just the importance of that leadership team working together every day that ultimately lets the associates that work on the floor be successful. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that you just said that the the forecast is is the forecast is always wrong. It's not possible to make it 100% correct. And so having the the flexibility kind of the the slack of being at 80% capacity gives you the ability to demand to respond to those variations in in the forecast that you know is wrong, right? Right. And, and we can have a whole other podcast, to be quite honest, <laughs> on push versus pull. Yeah. I am a, a practitioner and a proponent of pull. I, I, I grew up in a push upbringing, if you will, because I was in PE for a little bit. And that's all about absorption. That's all about, you know, getting as much through that plant to make as much money as possible. 
but ultimately when you push too much inventory, it eats into your lean culture. So that's where that forecast is critical, but it's really that the cadence of that plant, that's the key piece of making that successful operation, holding that efficiency target, holding that performance target, holding your ground in your, your organization and your standard of work, holding yourself to KPIs you'll then ultimately be successful. Yeah, I would I would like to talk about that. I think that would be really interesting, but it is not going to fit in the next five minutes. So how do you determine whether or not somebody got the 5S goal for the week? Is that easy to do or is it subjective? We have a scorecard. Uh, it's a manual scorecard, but we have a scorecard and we've identified or, or you kind of assign areas of the facility to a leader of a different area. So if I was in shipping and on the distribution piece, I may go look at our quality area and I would do a 5S and the checklist is the same and it's pretty easy. It's, you know, a one through a five and then the total score determines if you if you pass or not. So you have to get over a total score in order to hit the incentive. That's the biggest thing with our 5S program is that there's no leniency on the 5S portion of the, the incentive. You either hit it or, or you don't. If you don't hit it, there's, there's nothing you can do about it other than try to get it next week. And so within that, there's a report out, right? So I take the scorecard and then I note specific things that I saw throughout that scoring session. I give it to the line lead and then they're you know responsible for ultimately implementing that or working on those with their team. That's really interesting. There's a lot of stuff that I think we could dive more deeply into, but so let me make sure that I have like this, this correct as we, as we wrap this up and tell me where I'm missing, you know, kind of this house analogy. So we talked about the foundation that you put in and really in the middle, once you put in that foundation of, of trust engagement of the employees, kind of the, the beginnings of continuous improvement, is, is that the point where you add in sort of those more traditional lean tools? Correct. That's when you can get more sophisticated. Okay. Yeah. Sophisticated is probably advanced, if you will. Yeah. And then once you have things kind of stabilized and running well, like you said before, I mean, would you recommend everybody do an incentive program at the plant level? If rolled out the right way, I, I think it, it really helps, you know, keep people engaged. It's hard for associates to understand a back order and a budget because that doesn't impact them. They get paid whether they whether they come to work or not, right? They don't get paid on a commission plan. And a lot of the times back order really isn't an associate's problem. It's it's somewhere down the chain, forecast, supplier, ERP, bill of materials, whatever you want to, you know, say it is. So we found it to be successful. And to be honest with you, it pays them more than than most spot bonus programs at the end of the year would pay them anyways. And, and they get the money sooner. Again, it's the incentive, but no pun intended. It's that incentive to do well now, see immediate gratification. So a couple other generic questions that I like, I, I like to ask. What's something that you learned as a kid that still sticks with you today? So, so one of the things I think is just from a leadership perspective, growing up, I played a lot of sports. I, I was always kind of like, I liked the aspect of, of winning. Um, I was a very competitive kid. And I think that just being in operations is kind of an extension of playing a sport, right? You know, I can equate a CEO to owning a football team, right? You can equate a ops manager, or a plant manager to being a head coach. There's just so many ways that I can take a situation from a work perspective and quickly dissect it and, and apply it to something that 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 is very simplistic for me to understand. So by being in sports and seeing that and just being involved, it allows me to just kind of decompress real quick what's going on and then decide, you know, how do you lead these people? Because you can't not everybody, not every team can be led the same. Right. You don't lead a baseball team the same way you lead a football team. You don't coach them the same way. So if you can quickly kind of understand the personalities uh, that you're dealing with, 
you can cultivate and, and realign your your leadership approach. And I think that's probably the the biggest thing that I that I can use now that I got growing up. Yeah, that's great. What's uh, do you have a favorite book? Doesn't have to be a, a business book, but like something you recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's all sorts of books that I love to read. Books I like to, especially at, you know, like Ray Dalio's Principles is a really good book. the The goal from a manufacturing perspective is probably the best one to just really kind of connect the dots without getting into the lean minutia. It really kind of just shows you, okay, yeah, there, this is what I need to be focusing on. There's just so many, and then obviously, I've just going through like an MBA program, you have to read so many books. But you know, been reading a little bit of Extreme Ownership by uh, John. Willick recently. Um, that's a good one because again, I, you know, taking business management and applying it to something that like a war or leading an army or leading a group of Navy SEALs is really easy to tie the two together and you can just quickly reference things like that. So I like books that I can, I can reference real applicable type situations to that helps me then when I'm in the moment say, Oh yeah, I remember I read how they did this in the in the goal. I remember them talking about the Herbie. Right. So, you know, I can go, oh, where's the Herbie in this plant? Okay. You know, it's it's easy for me to go find it. Yeah. There's the it, you start to pick up themes throughout all of these books too, that at least the one that I've been picking up is culture is everything. Like if you have a good culture and you can build that good culture, you can do a whole lot and be successful with that. But if you don't, you got a lot of problems. Yeah. The thing is that culture is everything, but there is no set culture, right? Every business has a different culture. And I think that's one of the difficulties with something like LinkedIn or whatever you want to test it to. It's, it's, it's really neat to see cool cultures out there, but trying to hold yourself from a culture perspective to another organization is really, really difficult to do. And it's, it's unachievable. So for example, in Lean, Obviously, everybody wants to be Toyota, right? Every book in Lean is written about Toyota. Well, Tacconi's not Toyota. Tacconi's never going to be Toyota. So we have to be Tacconi. We have to come up with our own processing system. I, I think, yeah, I agree with you. Culture is everything. And, and I think there's a big piece of that is just developing relationships with people, treating people as human beings and not treating people as associates. Yeah. Building, yeah, trust and engagement. And that makes a lot of sense. And I, that's one of the things that I took away from a consultant I worked with a couple of years ago is him saying as a consultant, my job here is to get to know the people first. I want to know everybody's name. I want to know their kid's name before I can actually get out there. Then they'll start to trust me once I once I get that relationship built. Then the trust comes. Then the culture comes. That's an interesting point. I know a lot of people who wouldn't be willing to pay for somebody to walk around and meet all the employees. <laughs> as a consultant, but, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know. You know, I think it's an interesting perspective though, if you really think about it, because you bring in a consultant, consultant's going to tell you what to do, but you also need sometimes that consultant to be a change agent for you. And people look at consultants as they, they just get scared of them. Yeah. Consultant gets a bad reputation sometimes like lawyers, maybe not as bad as lawyers. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. I really appreciate you, you know, giving us an hour and coming on the podcast to do this. Uh, anything you want to plug or talk about as we wrap this up? No, I mean, I, I appreciate you having me on. We've known each other. Yeah. Like you said, five, six years, what you're doing with sensor tracks, you know, we're a sensor tracks user. I, I would recommend it to, to any company out there that's looking to either have a really sophisticated data collection system or a re really simple data collection system. But I think the timing has to be right, you know, and you have to build out and work with your team to put in the right systems that work for your your different businesses. So I think it's really cool what you're doing. I've seen it from the, the very beginning when you first started to where you are now, and it's, it's really neat. So kudos to you and your team on that. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Nick was uh, at customer number two <laughs> five years ago, more than five years ago at this point. So I appreciate that. And it's been fun to watch you, what you've been able to do with the different organizations that you've been at. I've been really impressed with what you've done. Thank you. So yeah, you're welcome. All right. So this has been the Zen and the Art of Manufacturing podcast with Nick Hinman, VP of Strategy at Tacony. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you find them on the internet. So um, Brian Sappett, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.